Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Emron Meyer has studied mind-brain-body interactions for over 40 years with a particular emphasis on bi-directional communication between the brain, the gut, and its microbiome. He's the executive director of the Oppenheimer Center for Stress and Resilience and the co-director of the Digestive Diseases Research Center at UCLA. He's the author of more than 300 scientific publications and several books, and his research has been supported by the National Institutes of Health for the past 25 years. And today we're going to go deep on all things gut health as we discuss his latest must-read book titled The Gut-Immune Connection, how understanding the connection between food and immunity can help us regain our health. Emron, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show, Jason. It's a pleasure. So the book is titled The Gut-Immune Connection, which we love here at Mind Buddy Green. And there's so much developing science in that area. So I'd love to start with what do we know about that connection today? You start off the book, you're talking about allergies, immune disorders, metabolic syndrome, brain disorders, all really serious ailments, if you will, that we're paying a lot of attention to. And, and we're also specifically paying attention to the gut and the microbiome and the role it plays in all of these bad things. And then the role it plays in all of the, the good stuff, if you will. So let's start with like the state of the union in terms of the, the gut immune connection and then broadly the gut connection to everything. Yeah, it's if you, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the brain-gut connection, you know, because this is bi-directional communication. But I have to say in the last few years, and it's almost like functional medicine and that the lay public have has almost like leapfrogged the scientific base on that. It's always been inflammatory diets and everything is the immune system. And But if you really look into it and with my own bias as a gastroenterologist, it, it all boils down to an interface that we have in the gut between, between the gut-based immune system. About 70% of the, our entire immune cells are located in the gut, so just microns away from the microbes. And the interaction of this immune system with the trillions of microbes that, that live in our gut, invisible. And they're, they're only separated by a couple of very thin barriers, but very effective barriers. So one is the lining of the gut itself, the epithelial layer, which has very, this is cells linked to each other with very tight junctions. And then equally important, a mucus layer that is on top of that epithelial layer. And these together are able to separate the microbes, the good guys in our gut from immune cells. And it's even more intimate, this connection, because even in a healthy gut, certain immune cells, the dendritic cells, they have these extensions that they stick through the epithelial layer into the inner part of the mucus layer, monitoring if any microbe gets even in proximity of the immune system. So in a healthy gut, the mucus layer is thick and the, the epithelial, the tight junctions between these, these cells so nothing really comes close to the immune system. and But this, it's a barrier that's in danger, has been endangered by, I would say, mainly two factors. I mean, one is our diet, and that's really where the, the diet got immune connection comes in. But the other one is also the brain, and we can talk about this later. I mean, the brain and diet can have a similar effect on that barrier, on, on this microbe immune system barrier. 
So what we have today, uh, for different reasons, is we have a hyperactive um, immune system in in the gut, and one aspect of that are the autoimmune diseases. So. The immune system is hyperactive against our own cells because it hasn't learned to differentiate properly between good and bad early on in life when there's the programming and the exposure, the immune system to to relatively benign microbes uh, and stimuli from the environment. And then later, it's the interaction of our good guys in the gut with the immune system because we have a compromised barrier. But in both situations, we have a hyperactivity of the immune system. One is directed against our own cells, autoimmune, ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease. In the other case, it spreads beyond the gut. So once that gut-based immune system that's localized is engaged enough, then it, it sends signaling molecules like cytokines throughout the body and can really affect other organs like the liver, like the heart, all the organs essentially, and also the brain. And so if you look at this, you come to the conclusion there's no other system in our body that has that global connection to everything else uh, as the gut does. I mean, obviously the gut is important for our nutrition, but now we know it plays this major role in the state of our immune system activation locally and distally. So something can go on in the brain unnoticed, for example, throughout our lives because of a compromised barrier and uh, causing mild neuroinflammation, which may just manifest as fatigue or a lack of concentration. But if that persists for 30, 40 years, then it leads to degeneration of certain nerve cells in the, in the brain. And then you have a situation that may lead to early cognitive decline and even Alzheimer's disease. So there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm going to start with the immune piece of this. So it's clear that the gut is the epicenter. And I think before COVID, COVID's obviously been terrible. Before COVID, I think people would start to think about immune resilience or immune support once they got sick. And now I think the, the, I hope the silver lining of COVID is people are thinking about immune resilience, immune strength, immune support before they get sick. It's just kind of got to be your, your, your daily, daily in your, your wellness toolkit. Got to think about it. And so with that said, what are the, some of the things we can do from you know, an immune support perspective we can do to, to strengthen the gut before we get sick, before we get whatever we don't want to get on a daily basis? What, is, what does that look like to you? Yeah, so that should be, you know, the default lifestyle. And because of that interface between the mind on the one side and the diet on the other side, I mean, the two areas that we can work on primarily is a state of mind that minimizes negative emotions and the chronic stress that we're all exposed to, something that has definitely increased during the COVID situation. And the other one is the diet. And in the diet, we want to essentially create a, a, a gut microbiome that optimizes this barrier function in the gut. So if you boil it down to the simplest uh, strategies, our, and, and that's something that I've you know promoted in my, in my book, if you eat to have in mind the, the benefit of your microbiome. If, if you keep only that in mind, that is sufficient to do that because microbes love to live in diversity. 
the microbiome ecosystem is most effective if it's a, a rich uh, ecosystem. So both diversity and, and, and richness, the numbers and the different types of strains and, and, and species. And the way you can reach this, our microbes live primarily of breaking down food components that are not absorbed rapidly in the small intestine. So I always said this, so if you're on a diet, typical standard American diet, it, that's optimized for absorption in the small intestine, be it the sugar, be it, be it the protein, also being, being it the fat. I mean, all of this gets sucked up. Uh, so before the food gets down into the end of the small intestine or the colon, before it reaches the microbes. So if you have a diet that, that delivers as much as possible downstream to the end of the small intestine, the ileum and the colon, then you provide a very rich diet to your microbes. And in order to, so each microbe is specialized on a particular breakdown of a particular molecule. So it's not like that we have, that every microbe does the same thing. They all are specialized and work in tandem with each other. So if you want to create diversity, you need to feed a very diverse diet that reaches the microbial ecosystem. And that means translated into practical, a largely plant-based diet with the greatest variety of fruits and vegetables. And so if you just eat tomatoes the whole year, that won't do it. If say you're a vegetarian because you just eat pizza, won't do it. It's uh, It takes some effort to, when you go to the market, you, you buy as many different types of vegetables. Seasonality in many parts of the world is an important part of this. We have kind of done away with this with our modern food systems where you can buy everything year, year round. But so the, the fibers, and, and, and there's two types of molecules that you want to feed the microbes. One are the fiber molecules, and they break them down into smaller pieces. Most well-known are the short-chain fatty acids, with butyrate being sort of the, almost like the general currency within the system. And But the other one, equally important, are a group of molecules called polyphenols, also contained in a plant-based diet. So these are very large molecules. They got a lot of attention some time ago, 10, 15 years ago, as antioxidants, because people found if you put these molecules into a test tube, they will, on the cells that are in the test tube, they will exert an antioxidant effect. What people forgot is that for these molecules to actually get absorbed, they have to go down to the microbes and the microbes break them down into hundreds and possibly thousands of smaller molecules, which then can be absorbed and are beneficial both for the diversity of the microbes, the health of the microbial ecosystem, but also are absorbed and just like the short chain fatty acids, it benefits throughout our body. So that's why I came up with this recommendation. If you just focus on the health of your microbiome and eat the things that we know now from heart evidence-based science that benefit diversity and richness, then it's a very easy conclusion to, and I keep emphasizing largely plant-based. So in my own life, I've migrated from you know, being an omnivore at some point early like in college, a carnivore and gradually. So I've moved in the last, I would say five years, definitely since I've written my first book to sort of a, a vegetarian slash pescatorian diet that is still largely plant-based, but I just, for me personally, there's no, also scientifically, there's no evidence that if you 
that health is better of a strict vegetarian as as, as opposed to somebody who is. Uh, and, and that has to do is as long as you get enough in there for your microbes, it's enough. If you add small amount of meat to it, it doesn't really hurt the you know overall equation. Well, I love your point around diversity because I, I think we fall into the trap is we hear something is great and then we just have it every day, whether it's tomatoes or I'm going to have almond milk every single day, probably switch it up and maybe try a different alternative milk or this idea of excluding or banning a certain food group is, is not the direction to go unless that food group is you know just a terrible food group or toxic. If you're going to bad, if you're going to ban sugar gummy bears, have at it, but it's problematic. And speaking to diversity, you mentioned polyphenols. I, I am curious, like if you're drilling in, if I'm going shopping at my, my local grocery store, store farmer's market, I got my shopping list. You mentioned polyphenol, phenols, you mentioned fiber. Could you kind of walk through kind of the, the key categories? I know in your book, you talk about omega-3s, the importance of omega-3s of like, if we're looking for that really great, diverse microbiome diet that your gut just loves, like what are some, sort of those key categories we should be looking for as we look to switch things up and rotate it? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a whole range from from legumes to like leafy vegetables, onions, kale. Uh, I mean, there's, there's such a variety. I mean, not everybody has access. I mean, you know, I should say this book has been written really for an audience that has access to the whole food markets. And not everybody, unfortunately, has that. And particularly the people I think that would need it the most on the lower socioeconomic scale in often inner cities don't have access to these markets. So, so this is a big problem. And we see it, they are more vulnerable to a lot of these chronic illnesses that, that I think are related to this diet microbiome interaction. It's obviously also fruits. Fruits have sugar in it, but the absorption of sugar is, is slowed dramatically. But if you eat the whole fruit with the fiber in it, berries, all kinds of berries have different types of polyphenols in it and there's there's the berries that you can get seasonally like the blueberries and blackberries but then there's others that now there's a whole market for those kind of more exotic berries from like south america that are dried or in powder form that, that's not really necessary i think the kind of the wide variety of, of berries that we can get in on, on a seasonal basis is is sufficient now w- one thing to keep in mind the polyphenol content is in part determined by how these vegetables and how these fruits are grown. If they are organically grown, particularly this regenerative organic agriculture, they will have a lot more of these molecules in them. And you can tell this by the taste of it. And it it sort of gives the whole organic uh, concept a whole new dimension. I personally did not pay too much attention. I thought it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a fad really to buy organic only. But it's definitely, and now it's the regenerative organic that you actually put things in the soil, not the chemical fertilizer, which kills the soil bacteria or suppresses them. But the polyphenol content, not every berry has the same amount of these polyphenols in it, depending on where they're grown. So blueberry coming from, you know, in winter in California, come from Chile or may not be the same, most likely not the same as the ones that are grown in Canada, in a sort of more natural environment. And- so how do we know? How do we get, how, it, it's a great question. How do you know 
what to, and I'm going to move on because you, you have a chapter, you have a great chapter. You talk about the key to the gut is in the soil, which I love. So I don't want to spend more time in the soil, but just in a, a practical matter, how do you know? Because everyone listening, I'm sure is you know, thinking the same thing as I am. It's like, I buy all, I buy broccoli, I buy spinach, I buy, I buy berries, you name it. Sometimes they get frozen organic. Sometimes I don't, but like, how do I know if I'm getting the best in terms of polyphenol content? It's like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, so this is, so. I, I think the awareness of the, the buyer is really important. I think this is something, and it's partially, it's happening already in some parts of the country, in cities, the farmers markets. So ideally, you know, uh, so we talked about, we talked about whole food, but if you have access to a farmer's market easily, and you even better if you know the farmer, you may have been to the farm and know how they grow and, and have this explained what they do to the soil. I, I think that's always the best. Otherwise, it is difficult. I mean, you really can't trace. Yes, there are companies that are trying to really push this label, regenerative organic agriculture, ROA. Um, so Patagonia Pro sure. Provisions has been doing this. I, I mean, Yvonne Chouinard is a sort of a, a really a pioneer in, in promoting these concepts. I, she's been very influential on my own thinking, but it, it's still hard for, for people to know that exactly if they're buying the right thing. I think um, going for the organic label helps. Going to the farmer's market, knowing a farmer helps a lot more. And in the future, I think there will be a demand, hopefully, by the consumer to have this labeled on, on the package. I mean, there's a lot of things like polyphenol content right now is not on the label, you have your fat and protein and, and sugar, but you don't have the polyphenol amount, which I think would be a big step forward because that would be an indicator how this food has actually been grown. It's almost like a measure of that. Interesting. So I love it. I would love to get to a place where we can take a look at that content. And I'm going to bring it back to, to soil and regenerative agriculture. We're, we're Mind Buddy Green. We believe it's all connected. And this idea of the key to the gut is in the soil, I think is a critical one. Could you spend a little bit more time talking about the power of soil and how it's not just about the planet and, and, and climate change and saving our planet, but it's also about nutritious, better food that's good for our microbiome? Yeah, so let me start with this. So with the um, modern agriculture, industrial agriculture is really, particularly over the last 75 years, become like a chemical agriculture, not an organic agriculture. So chemical fertilizers have tremendously boosted the output and have helped to stop famines and or prevent famines. But this has been at the cost or not thinking about what it does if you dump tons and tons of chemical fertilizers um, on the plants it's sort of like plants on steroids. It's an unhealthy growth. They get big, but they no longer are linked to this wonderful system that so a plant, if it's injured or if it's under stress, like a drought or the UV light that it's exposed to, it sends distress signals down into the root system. The root system excretes a sugar-like sugar -like molecules, complex carbohydrates, that attract microbes from the, from, and so the, the microbes settle in the, it's called the rhizome, the, the root system of the plant. And these microbes then stimulate the plant roots to produce polyphenols, which is the medicine of the plant. Then the polyphenols move up the stem of the plant to the most vulnerable parts of it. So which is 
the leaves, the, the fruit with its seeds. And so essentially those parts of the plant then become the ones that have most of the polyphenols. And that is the medicine that protects the plant, defends against pests, against, as I said, UV light uh, drought. So that's, that system, I mean, the wonderful thing is it's almost a, a precursor of what happens within the microbes interaction with our gut. Because this interaction of microbes that are attracted to the root system is the same as microbes interact with, with cells in our gut and are essentially our own pharmacy, the producers, the manufacturing site for a lot of our molecules that are good for us. So in, in that case, our head and our organs will be the fruit of the plant that gets the benefit from these interactions. So this, the cycle goes from... A, a healthy interaction of an intact, diverse, and rich soil microbiome with the plant roots producing a plant that's rich in polyphenols that we ingest, and then our own microbes break down these, it's almost like a sealed package. They break it down once it gets down to the large intestine, and open up the package with all the goodies that are in there. So it's kind of an amazing uh, system how we are linked to the soil health. So polyphenols, definitely a theme of this show. I'm curious for anyone listening who's like, all right, need to need to load up on polyphenols. What are your top three favorite sources for someone who's going to go to the farmer's market or grocery shopping? What are your top three favorite sources of polyphenols? Uh, so I would say berries are still, we eat the, I mean, always start with the blueberries, uh, golden berries, blackberries from the berry category. I mean, you can't go wrong with any of the berries as long as they are grown in a way. I, I would say your own personal testing mechanism is, do they really taste like the berries that you ate uh, when you were a child? So that's, if they don't, they probably have a, a low concentration of polyphenols. I, people probably, some people may remember the little strawberries that you picked in the woods in the summer had this really intense flavor. You, you can't even get those anymore and compare them to the big strawberries you fi find in the supermarket that have essentially no taste. If you didn't see it, you wouldn't know it's a strawberry. So that's one thing. Cacao has another, cacao powder has another very high concentration of, of flavonoids, one category of polyphenols. Another one is extra virgin uh, olive oil, which you don't want to consume in huge amounts because of the, the calories, but uh, you want to take it almost like a daily medicine, a very small cup of it. The best of these oils are expensive, so they are almost like medicine. And I would say, if you look for polyphenols in your diet, it is like, like a pharmacy with an F. You know, like a, um, it's 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 not getting enough calories. It's really getting health promoting molecules into yourself. Red wine obviously is another source, and again, consumed in moderation. The glass, half glass or glass per night is that's you don't want to go over that and I, I mean I would say these are the main sources that that I would seek out and then there's other things like you know the whole the whole category of, of seeds like the chia seeds for example it's another walnuts I mean you can almost say all these products that plants make that they are eager to protect against damage or insects or anything are the ones that that you want to seek out for and we use a big variety. If, if you saw our, our kitchen table, there's, there's a, like, like when we make our um, 
first meal of the day, which is typically at noontime. Then we have this whole range of things that we put together in, in, in a bowl and try to get, and, and this varies every few weeks or so. It's not always exactly the same. So uh, you made a lot of people happy about red wine, myself included. <laughs> and you also said that your first meal of the day is around noon. So let's talk a little bit about intermittent fasting or intermittent eating, eating or circadian, lots of different terminologies used these days. But what's your take on that and the role of role plays with a microbiome? It's a very important point. So my recommendation is you have to pay attention to what you eat. And we already talked about this, the microbiome targeted foods. The second one is where does this food come from? And the third one is when to eat. So those are the three categories I think that are essential. And uh, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of excitement about intermittent fasting and it definitely is an extensive literature, mainly from mice and rats, that this is beneficial for longevity and for metabolic health. And there's not as many studies in, in, in human subjects. So you have to, most evidence is still coming from preclinical studies. And I think the main limitation of this intermittent fasting is, yes, some very disciplined people can maintain this as a permanent lifestyle, because all the things we talked about is not just to doing it for a few weeks to lose a few pounds. You want to change your lifestyle to something that you can uh, maintain throughout your life. And I think very few people are able to maintain, unless you do it for religious purposes, maintain a one or two day fast a week on a regular basis. So studies have shown that, yes, these diets work for a year, but then it falls off mainly because of the lack of compliance and people falling back to what's I think what's much more realistic and, and again very exciting animal experimental data and microbiome particularly microbiome studies it's the time restricted eating so that you limit the uh, time when you actually expose your GI tract to any kind of food to eight hours a day and the rest you leave it empty and there's some very interesting things that 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 happen when it's empty so one is We've known this for quite some time in gastroenterology. The pattern of contractions in your gut switches to something that's called the, the migrating motor complex. So it, it goes into a rhythmic pattern every 90 minutes. There's this, this wave of contractions, intense contractions, slowly moving down from the esophagus all the way down into your colon. It's been originally called the housekeeper. So now we know this has a, another very important function. We, besides cleaning up your gut, it's pushing back microbes that might have overgrown in your small intestine back into where they belong, into the end of the small intestine, into the colon. So this whole thing, if, if you don't have a, a migrating motor complex, you'll develop something that's called this bacterial overgrowth or SIBO that many people believe they have, but they probably don't have the real form of that. So it, it changes the pattern of contractions and secretions bile secretion, fluid secretion, mucus secretion, all goes into this 90-minute cycle as long as not, no food is in the gut. That also changes, we know now, the, the what's, called, what's been called the geography of the microbiome in the gut. So how close it gets to, to the inner layer of the mucus layer and to the immune system, it creates a greater distance. The mucus layer is thicker, so a, a greater removal of the microbes from the immune system during fasting, and when you eat, it gets closer to it. So these two factors alone, some of which have been studied in humans, um, 
the microbial ones more in animals or only in animals. That has a, a beneficial effect on, on this whole microbiome gut interaction. And the third one comes to it. So when there's no food in the gut long enough, your organism switches to this ketogenic mode of uh, generating calories from not from the carbs that you take in with your diet, but from uh, fat tissue, breaking down fat tissue and converting it into ketone bodies that then feed the brain. And so when you have these, these 18 hours of fasting with, with a time-restricted eating, you, you put your body into this keto mode for 18 hours, and then you switch back. So you burn the fat, and then you switch back when you have your eight hours of, of, of eating to, to the regular mode. In my personal opinion, when I mean, that's opinion, not science, I think that's a much better way of using, taking advantage of the keto diet, or the, or the, the ketogenic of metabolism, than going on a ketogenic diet, which I do not promote because it, it depraves the, the microbes of carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates. So I, I think you can have the cake and eat it too. You can have, it's not that hard to implement this time-restricted eating. We've started during the pandemic and have really maintained this. It definitely has an effect on, a beneficial effect on your weight. And it has not, for us, has not bounced back for the past year or so. So I would say this is as important as the, the other two components of what you eat and where does it come from. I think you, you have to really rethinking about, you know, what's a healthy diet. So to summarize, the 16-8, essentially the eight-hour uh, eating window, and then the 18-6, the six-hour eating window for those who want to benefit from ketosis but don't want to restrict the, uh, the carb consumption, which I think a lot of people would say yes, so they'd sign up for that. Yeah. One thing I forgot because he asked me, what do we eat? How do we implement this healthy diet? So we have developed a pattern that our first meal around noon is a bowl, which is mainly, it is plant-based. It's seeds, it's seeds, fiber, protein, and the plant-based oils and fats that come with the seeds and the, and the nuts. So that's still almost like a keto meal. So you extend that period of the 16 hours even further into the afternoon. And then for an early dinner, we indulge on a, you know, a very large salad, lots of vegetables and sort of the, the Mediterranean type of diet. So I would love to do a study on that. We certainly have been very happy with it personally in terms of our energy level and weight. And, and to me, it makes a lot of scientific sense. It's all based on scientific concepts. If anybody ever does a study, very expensive study, a randomized controlled study on this, I don't know. It may never happen, but it's certainly, I, I think, a science-based recommendation. So something you also go deep on the book is systems biology. So could you, could you give a brief overview, a primer, if you will, on what systems biology is and why we need to pay attention to it? Yeah, systems biology is sort of the opposite of what has been practiced very successfully in science, which means a very linear approach, very specific hypothesis-driven approach that you sort of think beforehand what you want to test, you eliminate all factors that could perturb this result. And then you get sometimes dramatic results. I mean, look at this development of the, the COVID-19 vaccine, phenomenal accomplishment based on the linear the 
type of science. Now, systems biology, people have realized, for example, understanding the, the whole genetic basis. We were excited about the Human Genome Project, but then nothing really came out that was made a lot of sense clinically or had, had a lot of impact clinically until people realized there's genomics, studying the interaction, the networks of genes interacting with each other. To, so the interactions produce something different from the individual gene. So there's few diseases that are monogenic, you know, that there's just one, one gene causing one disease. They're, they've all been characterized. So now we're at a game where multiple genes interact. Same about the microbiome. There's still some believers that we can find the one bad microbe that, uh, you know, causes obesity. I think that's just a remnant of the traditional way of looking at it. We look at it as an ecosystem, a system of multiple interacting parts that that generate the, the ultimate effect on, on health, for example. And this has been happening really in, in all the disciplines in science. We've noticed this because if you look at the terminology, there's a lot of omics now. So all the omics technologies are aiming at understanding a large number of cells and molecules interacting. It's only become possible really through the rapid and continuous evolution of computing power. So this would not have happened if we couldn't feed something, millions of data and individual data into a computer, and then the computer looks at the patterns. And this will happen more and more in every part of society. So systems biology is the biological manifestation of what's happening in society in general, that we move into big data science and parts of a system interact. It's, you could also say in some ways, it's, it's a modern version of ecology has always thought this way, that individual species interact and you only understand the system, the whole system, if you look at it as a system, not as you know, the individual animal or plant species. And we have now mathematical techniques to actually quantitate this so we can quantitate a microbial ecosystem based on their network properties of uh, how much influence. So then it breaks down into hubs and edges and less important nodes in the network. And this is intriguing because ultimately, if you want to change the system, you want to get at the hubs because that has the biggest influence. If you have medications or interventions that affect a small edge of this system, it probably won't have a big effect on it. And we can also make diagnosis. So if we analyze a system like the microbiome, and, and this is beginning to happen, we look at, is there a change in the network structure? Not how many species of Acamansia or any, any other species or genus we have in this system, but you look at if the network structure is altered. and that is a predictor, for example, a predictor of Parkinson's disease, a predictor of cognitive decline. So a very exciting field. It will probably unnoticed to the consumer who generally doesn't really want to know any of the details of the science. But I think if we look around how many things are now systems-based and big data-based, virtually everything from self-driving cars to so that same thing, I think people have to be aware this happens happening in science and will fundamentally change the way we understand things. So it is an exciting time and there's so much science happening right now. Is that where we're, where do you think we're going to be in say two to three years in 2023 or 24 with regards to the field? Is it going to be all, 
What does that look like? I think there will be continuous rapid progress in understanding the, the microbiome. It will, it is already moving away from these relative abundances. So if you get a test, a stool test, commercial stool test, and and they give you these elaborate charts of if your level of this species is higher than this one, and we're going to be moving away from this. We're going to be looking at what these microbes produce, metabolites or called metabolomics. You can analyze this now. And we will understand this based on the network science, not on individual molecules. And keep in mind, this is, this is a challenge for the pharmaceutical industry or the industries that want to identify one molecule or one receptor and then develop a patented approach to modifying that one molecule. So now you're dealing with a system. How do you create um, profits from understanding that, that system? So that's, it's a much bigger challenge to do that. And I, I think the field will move further in this direction. And we will have, I would not be surprised if we will have really reliable tests that, that can predict or can give a very accurate readout in terms of your metabolic health better than blood tests. I, I think this. And on the other hand, we're understanding from the blood tests we can do the same tests for microbe-derived molecules in your blood. So this is probably the more interesting approach that we can do a metabolomics analysis of somebody's blood and pull out the pattern of molecules that all come from the microbes. But we can say this kind of pattern predisposes you to develop type 2 diabetes or Alzheimer's disease. And I, I think all of this will happen. I mean, di diagnostic techniques... In terms of interventions, we basically have one of the best modes of interventions now, which is the diet and the mind-based strategies. I think it will be a while before we have medical or pharmaceutical approaches that can even get close to the impact of those. But there will be, there will be microbes. There will be genetically manipulated microbes that produce insulin and that produce more short-chain fatty acids. And so I, I think you'll see this, that hopefully diet will be more scientifically promoted, not by dietitians and nutritionists, but really by physicians as well and uh, well-informed, which is still a big gap. Most physicians are not trained in this. But I think we will also have like very interesting approaches for Will we utilize the, uh, the complexity of the, the gut microbial ecosystem to deliver health-promoting molecules for certain diseases? I, I think particularly inflammatory bowel disease is a good one. If, if you can have a consortium of microbes that produce anti-inflammatory molecules in the colon, then you, this may be the best treatment for something like ulcerative colitis, you know. So I, I think, yeah, I can see some really exciting new developments in this area. But as I said in the beginning, we're definitely not there yet. I think what you hear now is uh, right. gets a lot of attention, new cure for this and this, and, you know, but we're not really there yet. So I agree, it is exciting, but we're not there yet. So my last question is one on a more practical level. For someone looking to buy a, a probiotic, any general advice is you know, we're shopping for a probiotic or we're not? Yeah. So my recommendation to my patients, I'm being asked that question from, by every patient I see is 
Definitely probiotics fermented food has been around for, for a long time in human evolution. This was the first method of conserving food. So usually takes about 15,000 years for our genes to adapt um, to some new environmental things. So I think our genes in the gut are adapted to benefit from being exposed to fermented foods. And I usually recommend naturally fermented foods. And depending on your taste preference and your access, could be anything from plant-based fermented foods to dairy, plant-based milk substitutes, fruits. It could be a whole range of things that, that are now available. And, and again, some people don't like the taste. could be something as conventional as sauerkraut that we have used actually a lot. And I still remember from my childhood that when you had a stomach ache, you were supposed to eat sauerkraut for a day. And, and from my memories, it usually helped. And that had probably had a lot to do with the microbial impact of this fermented food. So that's my recommendation. And similar to other food recommendations, the variety is a good thing because each of those naturally fermented food probably has a different group of fermenters in it that you colonize your gut with. With the pills, it's almost impossible to make an informed uh, recommendation. Yeah, there's some that have some scientific evidence behind them, but for most of them, the study, the quality of the studies is not as good as you would need for a new medication, like hundreds or thousands of patients in randomized controlled studies. And all these recommendations now of my 10 microbe my 10 probiotic mix with the highest concentration is better than this one microbe that is, or two microbes that some other pill has. It's not really science-based. It's. I also tell my patients, if you have been taking this probiotic and you think you have had a consistent beneficial effect from it, keep taking it. There's no harm in, in, in eating it. Agreed. Agreed. Well said. Well said. You know, look for clinicals. See how you feel. If you feel good, keep going. If you don't, stop. Yeah, <laughs> generally good advice for everything. And it's sort of interesting that so many patients, they they don't listen as much to their own response to it as they listen to the next advertisement or Instagram post. So oh, this is the best uh, probiotic. I, I think listen to yourself and being honest. So some patients, they come to me and say, yeah, I've been taking this for but then I stopped taking it and nothing happened. So it probably never did anything. It's a good idea to experiment. You, you take something that's harmless, for sure. That's a good thing. And, and you think you feel better, then stop it for a couple of weeks and see what happens. If you still feel better, you probably didn't need it. But Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Emran, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book, The Gut Immune Connection. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Great talking to you.